It's the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. A third of Pennsylvania disability service providers reported closing since 2020, and many are asking why the state isn't doing more to support them. Jillian McGoldrick covers government for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Jillian, welcome back to the program. Thanks for having me. All right. What community do these service providers work with? These providers serve people with adults with intellectual disabilities or autism. Mm -hmm. Now, we mentioned a third of providers closed in the last three years. What's the range of services they offer for those with intellectual disabilities? Yeah, so they offer residential facilities, some in-home care and also day programs that um, oftentimes offer jobs or um, different community-based activities for uh, adults with intellectual disabilities or autism. Jillian, did the closings affect all three of these categories you just mentioned, or was residential more affected or daycare programs more affected? Was one more affected than the other? Definitely the day programs. That was one of the sectors of disability care that was forced to close at the start of the pandemic. All right. A third close since 2020. Was there a trend toward shortages uh, prior to the start of the pandemic? There was. They These have been um, some low paying jobs for the caretakers. That's the, that's the main reason why a lot of these um, these programs have had to to close. Uh, so they have had some issues with employment pre-pandemic, but since the pandemic, um, since the end of the pandemic, um, or whatever we can call it now, um, they have really struggled and had to shut their doors w- due to a lack of employees. Mm-hmm. With these Closings, you report that demand outweighs the supply of services, the availability. Uh, Would you give us a little idea of uh, just how so? Yeah, so there are 4,000 people, um, according to the associations that that represent the providers, there's about 4,000 people who are approved for state money that have since um, not returned to services. So those are people who are just like, waiting to get in the door. There just isn't spots available for them. Then there are an additional 12,000 adults with intellectual disabilities or autism that uh, have that are still waiting for the state to approve their waiver to get that state money um, so that they can get into a program. Mm-hmm. Now, you mentioned the 4,000 who already been approved for the money and you said return to service. Had they been getting services prior to the pandemic or did this happen during the pandemic that they were approved, but they just couldn't find a spot? Yeah. So so pre-pandemic, they had been receiving services. So these are people who just haven't been able to return to services since the since the start of the pandemic. All right. So what sort of support? does the state already provide? Yeah, so the state and federal government um, provide, uh, just from the state level, we'll, we'll, we'll start there, um, about like $2.37 billion um, for these, these community-based programs, the res- residential in-home care, 
um, or day programs. So that's a significant amount of money, plus whatever federal aid they receive too. Uh, so they already get most of their, their financial support, but it's all reimbursements. So it's a fee for service. So you don't get that money until you're able to offer a person care. You don't get it until afterwards. So that is the main problem when you don't have enough employees you aren't able to offer as much care as before so it's just a cycle of of inability to be able to bring more people in that really need care mm-hmm. uh, so for these providers what are they lacking what are they needing yeah they they need more state funds uh and then they also need the reimbursement rates to be um increased they cover about a 15 dollar wage for the the caretakers um, the, the, the current reimbursement rates, um, but they still need more. Um, they need more, they need to be offering, uh, more competitive wages. Um, some service providers or even some of the direct, uh, direct support professionals said like they, they can just go up the street and go get a job at the gas station or the fast food restaurant and be getting paid more. Um, the average wage for these workers is about $16 and 72 cents. And this is a very, very um, uh, complex and challenging job where you are caring for someone who may not know how to keep themselves safe. They may not be able to, um, uh, eat their food safely. There's, there's a lot of other challenges that um a person at the fast food restaurant um most definitely does not have to do uh just about a minute left how about lawmakers have they responded at all to these concerns yeah they they have to some degree they they still need a lot more money though and and they the service providers did not see that in the budget this year. Um, they actually saw the the Shapiro administration uh, cut down funding um, from $170 million um, or by $170 million, um, citing a lack of uh, a lack of utilization because of all of these challenges we just discussed. And just seconds ago, will the stalled budget have an effect here, even paying the uh the uh, compensation for the work provided? Not so much. All right. Julia McGoldrick covers government for the Philadelphia Inquirer. Thanks so much for your time, Julia, and for your reporting. Thank you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy is teaching a new generation how to care for the green spaces in the city. Stephen Buckland is a naturalist educator and young naturalist program leader at the Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy. Stephen, welcome to the program. Thanks for having me. And Michael Beyoung is one of the young naturalists and 11th grader at uh, Pittsburgh Science and Technology Academy. Michael, thanks for being with us. Thank you for having me. Stephen, how long has the Conservancy been offering the Young Naturalist program, and how is the uh, cohort chosen? Yeah, the program started in 2014, so we're coming up. This is our our ninth year offering it, and um, we select students from all over the city, and they have to apply to the program, 
And then we kind of review their applications. They have to write essays and we interview them. And then we kind of select from there. We try to choose just like a really diverse group of students from different neighborhoods all around Pittsburgh and the region. So Michael, why did you want to sign up? Why did you want to participate? Um, I've always been interested in nature. Like I've always been going to the park and I thought it would be interesting to spend my summer, uh, like being in the park and educating myself about uh, different like careers uh, in nature. Not just educating, but doing something to contribute, right? Yeah. Stephen, uh, so how are the projects chosen? How are they prioritized that each cohort is going to work on? There's a number of factors that play into that, but this year we tried out something new where we chose a couple of issues we were facing around the Environmental Center campus and presented those to the students and let them come up with plans to address those issues. All right. So you have this broad area, Michael. And uh, so what did your group come up with to focus on that uh, Stephen just alluded to? Um, well, there were... Uh, uh, social paths that had been created by people um and these paths when it rained it would erode the path and it would become all slippery um so our group devised um putting in water bars so it would divert the water off of the trail and into the vegetation and stop the erosion all right, so the vegetation benefits, the paths are more uh, navigable, if you would. Uh, uh, Stephen, uh, what exactly did they do to sort of uh, avoid the erosion or prevent it? Yeah, so a water bar is a really popular strategy for getting water off trails. You basically dig a trench and bury a 4 by 4 post in there and put like a a wider area of the trench uphill and fill it with gravel. And that kind of helps absorb the water and, and deflect it off the trail. Mm -hmm. uh, what green spaces in the city does the program work at? You were talking about these are near the Frick Environmental Center itself. Uh, what other spaces do you work at? Yeah, this year we were actually able to do some work in McKinley Park as well as Frick. Usually we're mostly in Frick. Um, but this year we had a special project in McKinley Park installing some bluebird nest boxes in partnership with Soil Sisters. Now, oh, Michael, uh, you were describing uh, the uh, erosion prevention and the maintenance of a trail. So how does building or maintaining a trail inform a career in nature from your point of view? Um, it helps you to like understand how... Uh, people use uh, the parks and uh, people enjoy the parks. Um, and also doing trail maintenance is has to be done. Um, so there is a possible career at one of the parks. Right. Uh, possibly managing trails. Yeah, Stephen, we often hear about connecting with nature, this is literally making sure these trails, these pathways are uh, walkable, uh, literally connecting to nature. Yeah, yeah. I, I mean, um, 
we always like to tell people, you know, you don't have to come to the park to connect to nature. There's nature in your yard, but maintaining access to these trails is, is really important for allowing people to explore the parks. The program has an educational theme each week, Stephen. What are this year's themes, briefly? Yeah, um, it's a five-week program. We start with a retreat in the Laurel Highlands, and then the following four weeks, we explored uh, different topics. This year, we did lichens and air quality. We explored water conservation issues, birds, and insects. Mm-hmm. Michael, I wanted to ask you uh, anything about you. You said you wanted to be, and you explained why you wanted to be part of this program. Anything that surprised you about this experience? Um, I was surprised that we're able to design our own stewardship projects. Uh, I assume that we're just going to be told um, what we're going to do. And also, I was surprised, like, how wide the range of topics that were covered um, every week. Right. And so you had uh, more autonomy than you thought you would have. Yes. Yes. Uh, Stephen, uh, briefly, what careers or fields of study have you maybe seen students go into after this program? Oh, I, I think people go in a lot of different directions after this. Um, you know, we always try to expose them to careers in the outdoors, but a lot of folks just take their passion for the environment and find other connection points. All right. I want to ask you in our last minute, what does being a naturalist mean to you? Michael, you first, then Stephen. Um, I feel like being a naturalist is appreciating um, nature around you and uh, trying to protect it as much as you can um, so others can enjoy it. Stephen, what about you? Yeah, for me, it's it's about appreciating. It's about learning and sharing that passion with others, helping others connect to the wonders that are all around us. Stephen Bucklin is a naturalist educator and young naturalist program leader at the Pittsburgh Parks Conservancy. Stephen, thank you for your time. Thank you. And Michael B. Young is one of the young naturalists and 11th grade student at Pittsburgh Science and Technology Academy. Michael, thanks for participating. Good luck to you. Thank you. It's the Confluence on 90.5 WESA. I'm Kevin Gavin. A trial farm is taking root in western Pennsylvania, and it's not growing a new variety of corn or apple. It's sunflowers. Penn State Extension is looking to see if sunflower production can be practical and profitable in the state. John Miller is the Penn State Extension field and forage crops educator who is overseeing this trial. Welcome to the program, John. Nice to be here. All right, John, why now? What's happening with sunflower production that this trial is going on? Sure. So there's a lot of factors that have really influenced sunflowers in the past couple of years. Uh, one of the biggest, I'm sure a lot of people have seen it, the issues in Eastern Europe are really affecting sunflower production. Both, uh, both regions involved in the conflict produce a lot of sunflowers. And they're not being shipped out to the rest of the world in the same way or in the same volume that they were prior to that conflict. Uh, some other issues that we've run into 
Uh, some high production areas like Argentina are experiencing some severe drought uh, and their crop production is not near as high. And we've also seen that in our Midwest in some states where we grow a lot of sunflowers. Uh, with all those things combined, uh, Pennsylvania has a a very similar climate to the Dakotas uh, here, which is where we grow a lot of our sunflowers in the U.S., except that we have more moisture. So uh, the hope is that potentially we can expand our horizons here in PA uh, with some sunflower production. All right. You meant you alluded to uh, Russia and Ukraine. I believe they are responsible for 30 and 23 percent of the production, uh, respectively. Uh, so is now the right time for Pennsylvania to enter this? And you mentioned Pennsylvania has more moisture than the Dakotas. Is that a good thing or a bad thing when it comes to sunflowers? It could be good. It could be bad. Uh, it really depends on when our moisture shows up. Uh, if we experience some moisture early, you know, it could really help us to get, you know, maybe some higher populations of sunflowers out of the ground and maybe the Dakotas can grow. It, you know, gives us a jump. Uh, we don't have to maybe worry about drought as much, uh, disregarding earlier this year. Uh, but it also could be a negative. Uh, we could see some issues with uh, what's known as head rot, where you get fungus into the heads of the sunflowers, and that can severely impact uh, your yields and your quality of your grain uh, or your oil seeds from the sunflowers. So what's the uh, status of the sunflowers that you have right now? Uh, how tall are they and on their way to what? My sunflowers are roughly uh, probably about two to three feet tall, maybe a little bit taller. There's a little bit more variability than I'd like, but uh, they are uh, just starting to form a little tiny bud if you look into the top of them. Uh, for anybody out there listening that's uh, educated in crop staging, uh, they're roughly V5 or V4, um, but they should hopefully within the next uh, three to four weeks put out their heads and start to flower. Now, people might think of sunflowers, well, they're flowers. So what more can this crop provide other than adding beauty? So there's actually two major types of production sunflowers uh, available uh, for either consumption or oilseed purposes. So uh, the confection sunflowers, the ones that we consume at, you know, ball games or in uh, different recipes or whatnot, those uh, tend to do better in drier weather, and obviously they tend to grow in the Dakotas. But the type that we're growing here, uh, oilseed, is generally used for uh, cooking oil production. A lot of uh, chip manufacturers, people making potato chips, really uh, in, prefer to use sunflower oil in some cases. And so uh, that's probably one of the biggest markets for it is to crush those sunflower seeds uh, into oil. And will my birds be happy for the uh, black oil sunflower seeds? That is true. The The sunflowers that you see in your bird seed are uh, also black oil sunflowers. We may find uh, in agriculture that one of our prohibitive issues may be bird damage here. Would growing the sunflowers here affect other crops? Potentially. Uh, Pennsylvania has been a very traditional rotation state. We don't have the climate to... We don't have the climate to grow things like cotton, high dollar crops like that, or rice. Uh, we also don't have the markets for a lot of specialty crops. We have some small markets, some local markets. Um, but until now, Pennsylvania really hasn't had, you know, a huge market in anything outside of the standard corn, soybeans, and maybe wheat rotation. So sunflowers have a chance to, you know, potentially find a niche. 
Mm-hmm. I understand there's been success in eastern Pennsylvania in their sunflower production. Uh, what might be different about western Pennsylvania's conditions? Sure. So we tend to have a shorter uh, uh, growing period for sunflowers, and so we can't uh, maybe use some of the varieties that they've used. They've also had a lot of success in being able to double crop. Uh, so they they cut their wheat and then they plant sunflowers after it. And they've had some success with that. And so we do not have the amount of growing time, or it's likely that we don't, uh, without further testing, we can't be entirely certain, to get sunflowers in behind our wheat crops, especially in a, a wet year, we would struggle to get enough time. And so primarily it would be the opportunity to include sunflowers in an already existing rotation without really knocking anything else out. It, we have such a variable climate across the state with without a huge amount. We have consistency in the types of weather we get, but not so much on when they, we get them to some degree. And that will be kind of the biggest factor. And I think that to really dive into that, the microclimate of each area where you grow these sunflowers may be one of the other big impactors. In your mind, what will success look like with this trial? With this trial, simply getting them to grow. uh, This trial has been a lot of learning for me. I think that having come out of this trial, uh, for future trials, I'll be more prepared. You mentioned learning a couple of different times for this first trial. So what do you think will be the next step after this uh, first trial? So hopefully we'll be able to continue to maybe do some sunflower trials out here in Western PA uh, next year. And with that, we'll probably uh, we'll look at changing population. That was probably the biggest uh thing I've learned this year is adjusting the population with sunflowers is extremely important on how many plants are in an acre. Beyond that, I think that just understanding when and where to apply fertilizer, how to deal with different droughts with this new crop is is going to be some of the biggest things to learn and adapt for in the future. John Miller is a Penn State Extension field and forage crops educator. Thanks so much for your time and good luck. Thank you. I really appreciate it. And for today, that is the confluence where the news comes together on 90.5 WESA. Next time, a new study looks at what could be the overprescribing of antibiotics for a common childhood illness. And a small Pittsburgh suburb is leading the way with innovative protections for animals. Thanks to our team, Addison Deal, Laura Satsui, and Mary Lee Williams. I'm Kevin Gavin. Until next time, hope you have a good day of good news.